Shalom and welcome everyone to the ICEJ weekly webinar. I'm David Parsons, uh, Vice President and Senior Spokesman for the International Christian Embassy Jerusalem. Just going to say a quick prayer. We got a Bible teaching today, so we want to pray, Lord, give us ears to hear and hearts to obey what your word is telling us today. Hallelujah. We're going to teach, uh, have a biblical prophetic teaching, uh, another part of our Israel at 75 series. Uh, we've done several of them, and uh, Israel is now marking its 75th anniversary. And today we're going to talk about uh, Israel at 75 witnesses of the resurrection. It's a particular concept, a biblical topic that I think is very powerful, very uh, persuasive for Christians who, uh, if if you love Israel, it's a good way from, from this teaching to convince others about how God's hand is in the restoration of Israel today. If you know people who are just sort of indifferent to it, uh, I think this can really sway them as we look at God's Word. And when we're talking about the restoration of Israel, their national rebirth, the rebirth of the uh, nation of Israel in May 1948. It was a very uh, dramatic uh, um, watershed event in world history, and the impact of it is still reverberating to this day. In fact, uh, the Palestinians are still trying to fight the war of 1948 to destroy Israel and prevent its birth, well, it was born. Uh, and what we want to deal with it is, uh, today is, is what does Israel's return to the land and the return to the world stage as a, a nation among the family of nations, what does it mean for us today as Christians? Of course, for many centuries, with the Jewish people scattered, Many Christians um, said that uh, you know God was finished with the Jewish people, and in fact, because they had killed Christ, they had committed deicide, they had killed God, that they were cursed to endless wanderings, and they, they would never be able to reconstitute their nation back in the land that God had just made them the wandering Jew, never to return to the land again. And what uh, all those centuries of Christians who said this what would they say today if they saw an Israel that's been restored and almost half of the Jewish people back gathered in it and national sovereignty restored in the land? Uh, and what does it mean for us today as Christians who have witnessed this? And we have 75 years now, that's a long period of time, of God continuing to restore things to this nation. There's sovereignty uh, the the economic power of this nation. It, there's even scriptures where where God says He'll make Israel as battle axe. It's not such a nice thought, but thank God they have a military today that the, can defend the Jews. And when we start thinking about uh, Israel's national rebirth, as with any birthing process, it involved um, uh, suffering and. The rebirth of Israel in 1948, it is forever linked to the suffering of the Holocaust. There is pain in childbirth, and this was a 
tremendous pain that two-thirds of the Jews of Europe, over six million Jews, uh, basically half the Jews in the world were wiped out, were exterminated in an industrial mass scale slaughter by the Nazis against the Jewish people. And so we have to say that the rebirth of Israel was a, a miracle rebirth, a restoration of Jewish sovereignty back in their historic homeland of Israel, that it took place just three years after the Holocaust. This is a, an, a miracle. I mean, first of all, for the Jews to be able to even uh, start coming back to the land 40 or 50 years later, it was all the whole Zionist movement pre-state Israel. It was swimming against the tide of history. Uh, the nations really didn't support it. Britain came along and said, okay, we'll support it. But then they turned on the Jewish people, betrayed their promise under the Balfour Declaration, and by the time the Nazi menace was rising in Europe in 1938-39, the British, uh, in order to court favor with the Arabs, protect their interests in the Suez Canal and their access to oil in the Middle East and to their uh, part of their empire in India, they started siding with the Arabs and they set a strict, strict quota on the number of Jews who could come back to the land they uh, put uh, very tight limits on the Jewish ability to buy property here in the land of Israel. Uh, the White Paper of 1939 was really uh, um, just a, a horrific moment for Jewish leaders around the world that Jews would no longer be able to escape the Nazi, the growing Nazi menace and get to the land of Palestine. Uh, so for Israel to be born, uh, with very little support from the nations, and the one nation that, that said, okay, we'll help with it, they turned their backs on the Jews and started uh, even a, a, um, a, a, a naval blockade off the coast, uh, on, along the Mediterranean coast, to prevent ships that had Jewish uh, survivors of the Holocaust trying to get in the land. They were ramming the ships, trying to sink them. Can you imagine that these are, are, are Holocaust survivors? So, and even among the Jewish people in the pre-state uh, Jewish diaspora, uh, the Zionist movement was a minority view. Most of the secular assimilated Jews felt that a, a restored Jewish state here in the Middle East would sort of upset uh, the, the place they were finding, the acceptance and the assimilation, say, in Western Europe and in America, and they were opposed to to Herzl and Heim Weizmann and the Zionist movement, and even among the ultra-Orthodox, the very religious Jews, mainly centered in, in Russia, Eastern Europe, uh, all through Europe, uh, they were opposed to it. They said they basically had come to the conclusion God had placed them among the nations as a witness there uh, to, you know, uh, how to serve God. And they made their congregations take vows not to get involved with the Zionist movement. Uh, their children, they were they did not allow their young folks to go to some of the uh, Zionist pioneer youth camps and, and youth meetings that were being held in Europe and all. And so Zionism was a minority view right up into the Holocaust, even among the Jewish people. And uh, so, and it was the Holocaust that convinced 
the greater part, the mainstream Jewish people around the world, we need a Jewish state. So the rebirth of Israel, it was against the tide of history, and uh, it was a miracle in that the nation was reborn just three years after the Jewish people in their exile reached the lowest point of their dispersion. For centuries, some had longed to come back into the land, but they weren't able to. The moment was not right. And and yet now, uh, at the moment of their lowest, their nadir, they hit rock bottom with the Holocaust in 1945, 46, 47, right up to the rebirth of Israel in 1948. The, the immensity, the enormity uh, uh, of the, uh, this uh, huge tragedy of the Holocaust was still being uncovered, little layer by layer, families r- realizing, you know, I lost my uncle, I lost my aunt, I lost everyone in my family, my mother, my father, everyone. They were searching for each other, and the enormity of that tragedy became apparent. And, you know, people started talking, well, it's probably five, six million or more Jews that have been killed. They reached that lowest point, and yet just three years later, the nation of Israel is reborn. We have to call it a miracle. And yet, amazingly, the apostle Paul declared long ago in Romans chapter 15 that Israel's last days in gathering— would be like life from the dead. And we want to read this from Romans chapter 11. We'll start with verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not, but through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Note here, Paul says that Israel in their rejection of Jesus, it was a stumbling. It wasn't a complete fall. They stumbled over the the cornerstone, the rock of offense, as the Old Testament puts it. Here it says, now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I, I am apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by enemies I may provoke to jealousy those who are uh, are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Resurrection power of God in operation in our world today. Paul declared it. Here you have the Jews as seeing the mass graves of, of Jews in Europe, and all of a sudden it's as if the, the, the nation of Israel rises from the dead just three days later. It's a little like the, the uh, resurrection of Jesus three days after he was crucified and went through this horrible suffering for us, and everyone saw him dead. In 1948, we actually witnessed, the world witnessed, the resurrection of the Jewish nation, at at least the the rekindling of their national sovereignty back in the land. It's a process that is continuing, but Paul says what we are watching is life from the dead. And uh, he based his teaching in Romans 11 
on numerous um, Old Testament passages. We, uh, uh, for instance, Isaiah chapter 6, this is where he, he's a reluctant prophet. The, the angel touches his lips with a coal, says, you're a prophet to the nations. And he uh, uh, is told to go and pronounce over Israel that there would be a veil over the eyes of their understanding and their ears would not be able to hear all oh, we need eyes to see and ears to hear what the Lord is doing in our day as with every generation. But this was, uh, Isaiah had to go pronounce this over his people. It's a passage in Isaiah 6 that is probably one of the most quoted passages in the New Testament from the Old Testament. And, uh, and it talks there uh, at the end, Isaiah says, well, how long is this going to last? And then the answer is that, well, there's going to be a scouting of this people uh, in, into all the nations until only a rock is left. And when you start seeing it growing again, the implication is when you start seeing it growing again, and you can see some of this in Romans 11, it means life is coming back from the dead, that the this... Uh, um, uh, this veil over the eyes of their understanding, a block on their ears, is there during the scattering of Israel, but as they are coming back, as they are being recovered, as it says, or their acceptance, their ingathering, their recovery, what shall it be? Life from the dead, riches for the Gentile, but now even more so that uh, it's time for the veil of the understanding come off. Paul also takes his teaching in Romans 11 from, uh, say, Jeremiah chapter uh, 24. It's a vision of two baskets of figs, and it's about the restoration of Israel in the last days. Uh, and Jeremiah, you can basically take chapters 30, 31, 32. All of these are about the last days uh, in gathering of the people of Israel and a spiritual in gathering that then become a physical ingathering that then becomes a spiritual ingathering. This is very important. The Hebrew prophets are, are very clear. They all agree that the last day's restoration of Israel is a two-phase process. First, a physical ingathering back to the land in unbelief and uncleanness, uh, and followed by a physical ingathering of the uh, um Jews, a spiritual ingathering back to God by a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And I think for centuries, um, once Christians, uh, two, three hundred years ago, once they started sensing and God started opening their eyes that uh, God wasn't finished with Israel, and they started believing in a, that God was going to restore the people to the land, there was a debate among them whether uh, the, um, they would come back only after they are saved. And there was a lot of efforts to get Jews saved, especially in Europe in that time. Uh, Christians had finally you know, gotten a zeal for missionary activity for unreached peoples, and, uh, and, and the Jews became someone they said, you know, it's special. If they get saved, then they can go back to the land. Others said, no, they come back in unbelief. That debate over whether they come back saved or unsaved has been answered over the last uh, few hundred years, over the last hundred years, over the last 75 years, 
that uh, the, the prophets are clear. They come back in unbelief and uncleanness in order for God to bring them to cleanness, a two-phase process. And this is uh, very succinctly and plainly stated in two of the prophets, both in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 3, and in Malachi chapter 3, verse 7. The Lord says it very simply, return to me, and I will return to you. This word uh, teshuvah, return to me, it has the, the, the connotation of repentance before God, turning 180 degrees back to the Lord. And in modern times, many of the Jews coming back here, the whole word aliyah, the immigration to Israel, Jews coming back to the, moving back to the land, we call it aliyah, which has a spiritual connotation it's the word you use when you ascend to Jerusalem for the Hagim, for the High Holy Days. Well, here, it um, this return to land is also like a repentance and a return to God by coming back to the land. And God says, if you do this, then I will return to you a spiritual uh, uh, outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the nation where God brings them back to the land and then to himself. But the clearest passages on this two-phase process of the restoration of Israel can be found in Ezekiel chapters 36 and 37. We want to look at these for a few minutes. They're very important for setting the groundwork for more New Testament truths concerning ourselves, Christians, as witnesses of the resurrection of Israel in our day. Uh, if you go to Ezekiel chapter 36, it's set out very plainly, starting with verse 24, for I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Notice it's possessive. I'm bringing you back to your land. And uh, then it says, Verse 25, then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your faithfulness and from your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You'll keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land. I gave to your fathers, you shall be my people, I'll be your God, I'll deliver you from all your uncleannesses. Oh, hallelujah, if he's going to uh, give them a new heart, cleanse them, and put his spirit, I says, I'll put my spirit within you. You and I as Christians know that the only way the Holy Spirit can actually dwell in you, he might come upon you as in olden days to anoint you for a certain purpose, but for the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. I will put my spirit within you. You need the atoning sacrifice of Jesus to cleanse your vessel, to be that abode uh, of the, um, that, that vessel for the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. So something amazing is promised here in Ezekiel 36. But notice it starts with a physical return to the land in unbelief. In fact, if you look before verse 24, before this passage starts, it, God says, look, I cannot leave you out among the nations, because as long as you're there, 
the nations are blaspheming my name. They say that uh, God has abandoned his people. They actually accuse God of breaking his promises, breaking covenant with Israel, that, and God considers it a blasphemy against his name. And he says, I'm bringing you back not because you deserve it, Israel. You're still unclean, but for my name's sake, to defend my name, my honor, my reputation, that I am a promise-keeping God, I'm going to bring you back from all the nations where I scattered you. And then, once you're back in the land, then I will cleanse you, put a new heart in you, put my spirit within you. Hallelujah. This is a, uh, a powerful passage, Ezekiel 36, that it's hard to get it wrong when you see the, the process laid out, the two-phase process, so clearly and plainly. Then in Ezekiel 37, uh, I uh, think this is an equally powerful passage. It is the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. I believe Ezekiel was taken in the Spirit through time and was able to see the whole. It says, uh, Behold, uh, I was taken to uh, the midst of a valley, and it was full of bones, and there were very many bones, and lo, they were very dry. And he uh, he's told to prophesy over them for the skeletons, the bones to come back together and to get flesh on them and prophesy to the four winds for the wind of the Ruach HaKodesh. Ruach means wind, or Ruach HaKodesh is the Holy Spirit, for it to come and breathe on this body that the bones have come together there's flesh and sinew and tendons on it. Now it needs life. It's a passage about Israel being resurrected from the dead. And when we get to the basically the interpretation of this vision, he, uh, he says, um, uh, so I, Ezekiel, prophesied as the Lord commanded, and breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood up on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Hallelujah. Verse 11, this is Ezekiel 37, verse 11. Then he, God, said to me, Ezekiel, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say our bones are dry, our hoop is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. This sounds like right after the Holocaust, when the many Jews even doubted the existence of God or had trouble thinking of God because of how done, desolate they felt in the wake of the Holocaust. Verse 12, Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Notice the process. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened up your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you and you shall live. I'll, I'll place you in your own land. Again, it's the land of Israel, the land of the people of Israel. Then you shall know that I, uh, the Lord has spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. What we have to notice here is that four times— in two verses, 
the this is uh, verses 12 and 13, the Lord says to the people of Israel at their lowest point when they say we're cut off, we're hopeless, we have no more hope, God says, I will bring you up out of your graves when I bring you out of your graves. Out of your graves, out of your graves. Four times in two verses, God says, I'm going to bring Israel out of its graves. This vision of this valley of dead, dry bones, being brought back to life, it is re- it takes the resurrection of power of God to do this. And this is why Paul is able to say in Romans 11, verse 15, what shall their acceptance or their ingathering be but life from the dead? God's resurrection power operating in the earth today. Hallelujah. Someone out there needs to say amen. Put it in the chat section. Amen. Hallelujah. For 75 years now, and basically for over 120 years or so, you and I have been witnessing the resurrection of power of God at work in the earth, in the nation of Israel, in its restoration. And I believe this places a great responsibility upon us. How so? Well, let's talk about what the concept of witness means uh, in a biblical context. And, uh, of course, we have the apostles, uh, the followers of Jesus. They use the word witness often, and Jesus, he's the one who who, uh, directed it in that way. He said, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. And they would go around declaring, we are witnesses of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And in that Hebrew mindset, we have to understand that the, the idea of being a witness, uh, if you are you know, a witness to something, it, it carries a deeper meaning than just what we consider today. You, know, you see a crime or a car accident take place, and you're a, a, an eyewitness to it, this is a much weightier thing. I know we have, um, uh, you know, we've all seen something happen with cameras, everyone's phone cameras. It's much easier to film stuff today and to have proof. But if you are an eyewitness of something, I've been an eyewitness of, of a horrible accident where a friend of mine died in a car right in front of me and I had to go testify on the stand. Uh, I was a lawyer myself, but, uh, you know, getting there to, and testifying, it's not easy. You're under oath. You got to tell the truth. But, you know, we all witness stuff. We got eyewitness news today. Um, and, uh, you know, we we just put a mic in front of someone. What did you see? Or you have to take a stand. For the Jewish people, there's a much deeper weight, weightier meaning to witness. Um, first, the Ten Commandments say, Thou shalt not bear false witness. We we say, you know, it says, thou shalt not lie. It says, thou shalt not bear false witness. So there's not only a societal stigma. I think most societies, you're not supposed to lie, but everyone sort of excuses it. We all give white lies about why we're 
late for work. We didn't do this. We didn't get our work done, our homework or whatever. Uh, we all tell the lies and, you know, everyone's doing it and everyone sort of lets you get away with it. But in a Hebraic culture, in biblical culture, you are not supposed to lie because it's one of the Ten Commandments. And it's, you know, it's as bad as, as murder or whatever. You're, you've got to be a person of truth. But you add to this what is called the law of witnesses in Deuteronomy. Um, it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 15 through 21. And here it's setting up, you know, uh, through Moses, God appointed judges to help judge the people. And if there was a matter brought before him, uh, uh, you have to have witnesses, like like the woman who was caught in adultery with, uh, you know, and they brought her to Jesus, and he writes in the sand. No one knows what what he was say he wrote there, but everyone left. But if you were going to accuse someone of adultery, you had to have at least two witnesses, two people who saw it, who were willing to go uh, under oath before a, a judge of Israel, what became the Sanhedrin, and say, I saw it with my own eyes, and here's what happened. You had to have two witnesses. But Deuteronomy 19 says there's an extra layer to this that if that witness, if someone is, is, is witnessing but giving false testimony, then they are subject to the same punishment as the crime they are accusing someone of. If you accuse someone of adultery, that's a capital offense. Should we, you know, and they're asking Jesus, should we stone him, stone this woman and all? And, uh, but if you're going to be the one to testify, I saw someone committing adultery or I saw someone stealing, uh, you and you are proven to be a false witness, then you are subject to the same punishment of the, of the crime you are accusing someone of, whatever it, whatever it is. And some of these were capital offenses. You could be stoned to death for this. So, you know, to go and say, I am a witness of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, it carried much more weight. You were actually taking a risk because you are talking, I, you're saying, I saw someone murdered, which if you're found a false witness, you are subject to the penalty for murder. This is the law of witnesses. And therefore, the followers of Jesus, they had a huge risk in not only going before the people in a society that says you can't lie, they said we are witnesses. And they say it in the context of the Hebraic culture and mindset. We are witnesses to the death. We know who killed it. Men of Jerusalem and Judea, you killed the Prince of Life. Um, Peter preaches in Acts chapter 3, all through there saying, men of Jerusalem, men of Israel, you, you did this, but repent because God raised him from the dead. We saw him. We saw him raised from the dead. And I believe the, the 12 apostles were actually appointed by God to be the 12 witnesses, not just two, but they, if they ever got the opportunity to go before the Sanhedrin, 
they would send 12 people, the 12 closest disciples of Jesus. It was part of the definition of an apostle. They were the ones that were going to go to the Sanhedrin under oath with their necks on the line, because if they are found to be false witnesses, then they are subject to the death penalty. Why? Because they are saying, we watched a murder. We saw it. We witnesses. Jesus was innocent, was unjustly punished. But repent now. Why? God raised him from the dead, proving that he's the Son of God, and now it's time to repent. So that puts a whole new context to the, the idea of being a, a witness of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It kind of changes how we view that. And we should uh, also have it change our idea and our view concerning the resurrection of Israel in our day, because it is the resurrection of power of God at work, just as it was in raising Jesus from the dead. We find this in um, Acts chapter 10. I think uh, uh, this is quite remarkable. Uh, the preaching of Peter and the preaching of Paul in the book of Acts concerning the resurrection of Jesus. Of course, Acts chapter 10 is where uh, the Holy Spirit is summoning Peter to come and teach uh, um, Cornelius, this first Gentile, it's the gospel being first preached to a Gentile. The Lord moves sovereignly to bring Peter from Jaffa up to Caesarea to the home of Cornelius. And uh, in chapter 34, in, in Acts 10, verse 34, starting with 34, Peter uh, starts giving Cornelius uh, the gospel. And he says, uh, we, it says, verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, went about doing good and healing with all who were pressed for the devil. And, uh, and we are witnesses. Here's this word, verse 39 of Acts chapter 10. Peter says to Cornelius, we are witnesses of all which all things which he, Jesus, did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. He says, I'm a witness to a murder. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God. God was very careful in his selection of these followers of Jesus. They were going to be bold enough and to put their lives on the line going before the Sanhedrin and all people to testify this. He said, chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. We even saw him eat and drink. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead to him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sin. So we have Peter saying, we are witnesses of his death. We saw a murder. And we are saying we're witnesses in the context of the law of witnesses. Do, you know, make no mistake. 
We know the risk for saying we watched a man murdered and killed unjustly, but we also saw God raise him from the dead, and in that act of resurrection power, God showed he had ordained this same Jesus to be the judge of the living and the dead. Amen? Resurrection power carrying a message with it that this Jesus who was crucified, he is now the judge of all men. Then you go to Acts chapter 17. Paul also preaching, the Apostle Paul uh, preaching to the Gentiles in Athens. He's seen their idol to the unknown God. He comes and says, him declare I to you that, uh, you know, God isn't worshiped with things that we make with our hands and and with buildings and such, but uh, uh, he is our maker and creator, and we owe him our worship. And even if you should happily seek after him, you're going to find him. God actually wants to be found. It says, in him uh, we live and move, have our being. This is Acts chapter 17, reading from verse 28 and now 29. Therefore, we are the offspring of God. We ought not to think the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art or, and man's devising. Verse 30, truly these times of ignorance, the times of the nations, the Gentiles being in idolatry and worshiping idols, the times of our ignorance God overlooked. He laughed at it. Some translations said God just sort of dismissed and held his nose at our idolatry. But now he commands all men everywhere to repent. Something's changed. What is it? Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. The judge of all the world is a man, Jesus, whom God has ordained. He has a given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. That resurrection power that brought Jesus up from the grave carried a message with it. God said, Paul says, God has assured us that Jesus is the judge now of all men. It might have been different before, but from the time he raised Jesus from the dead, you are now accountable before God. Why? Because he assured us. He sent us a message by raising him from the dead. And when the people heard of resurrection of the dead, some mocked, others said, we want to hear more on this matter. The point here is that any act of resurrection power operated by God here in the earth, it carries a message. Both Peter and Paul says when God raised Jesus from the dead, it was a message to all men that the times of your ignorance about the things of God, the existence of God, how to worship God, all the things that God revealed to Israel but hadn't revealed really to the other nations yet, it was now time uh, where you were now accountable before God. Why? Because we are witnesses. We watched him raise Jesus from the dead, and by it he proved that this Jesus will now judge all men based on how they respond to him. And uh, this is, uh, you know, the message is that your days of ignorance, 
Paul talks in Romans 11, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. There's times of ignorance that God overlooks, but there's times when he does not and he holds you accountable before it. Every resurrection power of God, every act of resurrection power of God in the earth carries a message. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, it carried a message. Jesus proclaimed it. I am the resurrection and the life. When God raised Jesus from the dead, he declared him to, God declared Jesus to be the judge of all humanity. It was now time to repent. You're accountable and you cannot get away with your sins, your idolatry, your ignorance of God any longer because we saw it. We watched the resurrection power of God. So what is the message from God in resurrecting Israel from the grave in our lifetimes, in modern times, as we've watched Israel being physically raised from the dead and awaiting that spiritual resurrection as well, what is the message? First of all, the restoration of Israel in our day is the greatest sign that the world is about to be judged. Jesus is the judge, and you're about to be judged. Just as the building of the ark was the greatest sign to the ancient world that they were about to be uh, judged in a, a catastrophic uh, wrath of God, the flood, the building up of Zion today is the clearest sign we're about to be judged. I covered this in a recent uh, ICJ weekly webinar just a few weeks ago about uh, in our Israel 75 series. It was about uh, the link between Israel and the flood, the um, the the Ark of Noah. Uh, and and uh, this you find this in Psalms 102, verse 16. When the Lord shall build up Zion, he will appear in his glory. He came first to suffer and die for sin. He comes this time to judge the earth. We can show you that throughout Scripture. Isaiah 54, verse 9, this restoration of Israel, the Lord says, is like the waters or the days of Noah to me. When he judged the earth, God is faithful. He's just. He's fair. He always gives warning. The restoration of Israel is the greatest warning to the world today, the clearest sign. We're about to be judged, and we're going to be judgment. A big part of this judgment is on how we've treated the, the Jewish nation and the Jewish people. You find this in Psalms chapter 2, where it says, Why do the nations rage and plot a vain thing that God will place his king upon his holy hill? Talking about some uh, global conspiracy and, and effort to keep the Jewish people from reaching their destiny with the uh, promised son of David sitting on his throne in Jerusalem. And it says God is going to get angry and speak forth out of his anger uh, against all this and judge it. Joel chapter 3 is very clear where uh, uh, the prophet says God is going to gather all nations to Jerusalem in the valley of Jehoshaphat and enter into judgment with them there. Why? Because they scattered my people, divided my land, they cast uh, lots for my people, 
They uh, uh, sold a son as payment for a harlot. You gave away a Jewish boy in order to have a harlot, uh, and you you uh, you sold uh, my daughter so that you could buy a pint of whiskey. You could get some wine. I mean, we have never the Gentile nations as a whole. We've never really appreciated the uh, election of God over Israel for the redemption of the whole world, and we've always treated them wrongly. And one of the judgments that is coming on the earth is that nations will be judged for how we have treated Israel. Secondly, the message of the uh, we as witnesses of the resurrection of Israel on our day, the message is that we are, are no, uh, we can no longer be ignorant or indifferent to Israel. It's a new day. We're accountable for it, just as Peter and uh, Paul preached to the Gentiles that the resurrection of Jesus meant it was a new day. You are now accountable uh, to God for all your sins, your idolatry. You better repent. Why? God raised him from the dead, and we saw it, and he's going to judge your life and my life. For 75 years now, Christians, the, the whole Christian world, has been witnessing Israel emerging from the grave of the Holocaust and being placed back in their land and restored, their sovereignty restored, uh, a booming economy, thriving startup nation, a strong nation militarily. Uh, really, you know, even other nations in the region that once hated them starting to recognize this upward trajectory of Israel. We can't get rid of it. There's something prospering about it that we can't stop. We, we've tried to put it back in the grave. It won't work. We better acknowledge it, make peace with this nation. We see this in the Abraham Accords, but it's, uh, uh, you know, at least they're starting to get the, the message it's irreversible that uh, um, they're still part of Israel's ultimate destiny, their national salvation and redemption that's still unfolding. But that physical ingathering, we've seen it for over 100 years. We've seen sovereignty restored for 75 years. Uh, and Israel that was scattered and in disfavor with God, we might have looked at it before and say, oh, it's the judgment, the hand of God. But if we're looking at it today and still clinging to replacement theology and that old teaching that the Jews are, are scattered to endless wanderings because, and they'll never restore their land, if we're still clinging to that after 75 years of a restored nation of Israel, something's wrong with your understanding of Scripture and your biblical worldview, and you're, you're still in your ignorance. And God, he might have overlooked it in the past when the Jews were still scattered, but he is not overlooking it today. We are all witnesses in that Hebraic sense of the word to the resurrection power of God, and we better be faithful and not false witnesses about this. Once God has restored Israel in this land, this is a new day, and we are held responsible for our response. I think it's important when you look back at uh, when Israel was in the wilderness and the sin of the golden calf, 
when Moses went to intercede with the people and say, God, forgive us and, you know, turn your wrath back away from us. God was about to destroy them. Uh, his first line of defense, the first line of defense that Moses gave was that, God, what are the Egyptians going to say that you delivered the people of Israel out of their hand, but then you came and destroyed them here in the wilderness? And what are they going to think about you, God, that you're just some ogre and whatever? And that was the first line of defense of Moses to God in trying to turn back his wrath. God, what are the Gentiles going to say about you in relation to your covenant relationship with Israel? When there was a later time when Moses had to intercede, it might have been the, the bad report of the ten spies. There was another incident where God was angry and said to Moses, get out of the way, I'm going to destroy the people. Again, Moses came to intercede for them, and his first line of defense, God, what are the Canaanites, the people in Canaan, going to say that the God who delivered the Israelite children out of Egypt, he's not able to bring them into the land he promised? What kind of God is that? Again, Moses' first line of defense, what God, what are the Gentiles going to say about you uh, in your relationship with the Jewish people? And I think this is such a powerful argument and contention today. God is interested. He does not ignore it. He does not uh, he, he sweep it under the rug. What you and I as Gentiles think about his relationship with Israel, it spared Israel twice that Moses said, God, the testimony has to be. It has to be. You are always faithful to your people, Israel. You correct them, but you love them. You scatter them, but you gather them, and uh, you regather them. And some Christians are saying, you know, God is finished with Israel, and he, he even if you know Israel's been restored and brought up out of its grave, they they. They want to erase Israel today, and they want to put put the Jewish people back in the grave. So they're uh, working with with absolute anti-Semites to undermine Israel's legitimacy. Part of the delegitimization campaign, trying to strip strip Israel of the right to defend itself, trying to dismantle the Jewish state, create maybe a a, a, a one state with two people, three religions with an Arab majority or whatever, uh, trying to put Israel back in the grave. God has raised them from, from the grave, brought them up out of the grave as he's promised, and they're trying to put him back in. And these are Christians who are working uh, so hard against Israel, and I say they should fear God because they are accountable and they will be judged for this. But there's this much larger group of Christians out there who are still indifferent uh, and uh, um, complacent or whatever you want to call it, just this indifference to the ongoing resurrection of Israel, this restoration of Israel. They think it has nothing to do with them, that, that God is only interested in the church and they're just going on their merry way and don't really consider Israel, care about Israel. But after 75 years, 
of a restored Israel, overcoming all the challenges that it has against the tide of history, a miracle rebirth, and now blessing the whole world in so many ways and moving closer and closer to that spiritual ingathering before God, we cannot re remain stuck in our ignorance and indifference. God may have overlooked it before, but we've had 75 years now of the resurrection power of God being demonstrated in the earth, and every Christian needs to come to terms with it and accept it and embrace it and call it what it is, life from the dead. Something is happening here. We're in a process. The physical life is coming back, and that spiritual life is already happening with the growth of the messianic body, and it's going to continue, and every Christian needs to contact, connect with Israel in positive and meaningful ways. Pray for Israel. Visit Israel. Come to our feast. Get involved in, in the Aliyah or helping Holocaust survivors, all the things that are out there for us to do to stand with Israel on this day. And I believe that having a, a love and care and concern for Israel uh, among Christians today, there are millions, multitudes of Christians who have this. It's not necessarily a litmus test of whether one is saved. Maybe the you know, the light of, of the cross, you respond to that. Some people need that other, that next revelation of the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Israel is a mystery. Israel is a revelation that you have, have to have. But, uh, and it doesn't mean you're not saved if you don't love Israel. But I do believe that today it indicates if, you, if your heart, if you've opened your heart to Israel, God's been tugging on your heart. There's something special about the restoration of Israel, and you've responded to that. It means you're flowing with the Holy Spirit today. After 75 years of a, of a revived Israel, if you are still clinging to your, the old negative views and attitudes towards the Jewish people and still think Israel does not matter, you are risking getting cut off from the move of the Holy Spirit in our day. I believe this. You might not lose your salvation, but you, you know, if you don't get with the program of what the Holy Spirit is doing, we see it in the islands of the Pacific, all through Asia, even in China and India and Indonesia, Malaysia. These are persecuted underground churches, minimum, that, that uh, they're, they're being bombed by the Muslims and facing all sorts of problems in Africa, in, in Latin America. And yet all of them, all of them, this move of the Holy Spirit and, and multitudes being swept up into the kingdom of God, almost every one of them has a heart for Israel. And many Christians in the West still are indifferent, ignorant, or opposed to Israel. And I'm telling you, the, it's a move of the Holy Spirit today. It's part of this last day's revival, having a heart for Israel. And if you still got your own heart of stone towards them, Paul gives a warning in Romans 11, if you are arrogant towards them, if you don't get this and you see the resurrection power of God at work, God is declaring it in his word 
an act of his resurrection power, and you're indifferent to it or you're opposed to it and trying to put Israel back in the grave, you stand in, in not only in judgment, you're going to get judged for this, but you stand getting cut off from the move of God in our day. And that's very serious. And we are finding, we're hearing it. I just heard it in in England when I was there. We're hearing it all over the world that once Christians, and this is from pastors too, that they their heart was close to Israel. They knew there was something about it, but they never really you know, wanted to look into it at all. But as soon as they started opening up their heart to the restoration of Israel and all that it means and started embracing it, they started getting a move of God in their church. People started getting saved, healed. The prayer, the prayer meetings had more attendance. However you want to measure it, God began moving in all these churches because they opened up their hearts to the restoration of Israel. That is our message for today. We are witnesses of the resurrection power of God in the earth in this physical ingathering of Israel that we are now on the verge and moving into that spiritual ingathering. And it is the hand of God. It is the resurrection power of God. And we are witnesses of it. We are accountable to God for this. God is interested in what you and I as Gentiles, believers, say about his heart and his relationship with Israel. We are now accountable and cannot run from it. We cannot remain indifferent. You might as well embrace it and let the fire of the Holy Spirit burn in you, giving you that passion and that zeal for Zion that is expressed through the prophets. It needs to come alive in your hearts today. Get connected with Israel. You can do so through our ministry. There's other ways to have the practical, meaningful, and very enriching, rewarding uh, connections with Israel today. One way is to come to our Feast of Tabernacles. It is, it's running this year from 29 September to 6 October. We hope you can come with us in person. If not, join the online feast. Uh, and you can go to feast.icej.org and register there. It is an incredible way to get connected to the plans and purposes of God in Israel in our day for the body of Christ, the body of Christ from all over the world coming together and moving with his Holy Spirit here in this land as he's breathing life into those dead, dry bones and bringing them to life. And uh, I just hope you've enjoyed this message. I uh, uh, ask that you share it with others. Please uh, um, share it. Uh, you can go over to um, Facebook and share it. Go uh, to YouTube and, and get the link when the when it's put up there, within an hour or so, they'll have a final uh, version of this video teaching, our webinar up there. You can share that YouTube link with others, but share this message. I just think it's very important in this year, the, the 75th anniversary of Israel. Something about this year just tells me that God is, from now on, no one gets away with this anymore of being indifferent or in opposition 
to the restoration of Israel within the body of Christ. You've got to get your heart right towards the people of Jesus in order to have your heart right towards Jesus himself. That's our message for today. God bless you from Jerusalem. Shalom.